Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. This month's Masters Classic features Sandra Feinstone, a breast cancer survivor who became a national advocate after seeing the need to provide more support for survivors and their loved ones. With her strong message that we don't have to do big things to make a big difference, this interview will help you become more informed and ready to do your part for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with your friends and sign up for our mailing list at mastersbywinclaybaugh.com. And remember, Masters Podcasts are also available on your favorite podcast platforms. Hi everybody, this is Wynn Claybaugh and welcome to this issue of Masters. We are doing this interview to release it in September of 2007 and the reason why I'm sharing that with you is because October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and I thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to uh, get some facts, get some information out there as well as a call to action, um, wonderful ideas on how you, the listener, can get involved and get active and you know, knowledge is power and what really makes us powerful is when we do something. You know, to have the knowledge and do nothing with it really isn't too powerful and so, you know, Masters is always, always a call to action and I thought that this would be a great time to get this message out there and today I'm sitting with a wonderful woman, her name is Sandra Feinstone and uh, you're just not going to believe her bio, but before I get into that, Sandra, welcome so much to Masters. Oh, thank you for having me here. Now, I think you got the phone call, what, yesterday? Yesterday. <laughs> and so gracious that you just, <laughs> she walked in here this morning and I said, do you know why you're here? She said, no, not really. <laughs> but I have a feeling that that's kind of how you live your life. Wherever I'm needed. That, that's perfect. Now, I have a personal connection to you because my very good friend, Kate Kazi, has recently gone through her uh, treatment. She had a double mastectomy and uh, is doing amazing. In fact, um, it makes me very emotional. Mm -hmm. I talked to Kate this morning. Uh, she's doing incredible. And uh, she said to tell you hi, but she also wanted the listeners to know that the, the first person that she obviously talked to when she got her diagnosis was her doctor. The second person that she talked to was you. And the minute Sandra stepped in, everything was okay. Oh, and you, nice. you took her on that amazing journey, as I'm sure you have done for many, many people. Now, to give our listeners a little bit more information on who Sandra is, you had your own diagnosis of breast cancer in 1983. Correct. And I, I do want to talk about that, but that kind of catapulted you into action, obviously, you know, for your own uh, healing and through your own process, but then it didn't end there for you. You know, once you got that clean slate, it was, okay, now let's get busy. Mm -hmm. um, Sandra is currently the coordinator of breast and prostate cancer patient services at Hope Hospital uh, Cancer Center here in Newport Beach, California. I have to tell you, her community service, I'm looking at 80 plus titles and roles related to community service, including a board member of American Cancer Society, president of the Susan G. Komen Foundation uh, in Orange County, 
in terms of awards and acknowledgements, uh, Volunteer of the Year with Orange County Common Foundation, BMW Local Hero Award, Bloomingdale's Outstanding Volunteer Award for the Komen Foundation, Spirit of Volunteerism Award by American Cancer Society, uh, Volunteer of the Year, Orange County Affiliate of the Susan G. Komen Foundation, Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Susan G. Komen Foundation. And again, it just goes on and on and on. Um, I'm almost as busy as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be emotional for me. Okay. Our industry, I don't know if the statistics are true, but our industry is made up of about 80% women. Right. And I want you to know my best teachers have been women. Mm-hmm. My best mm-hmm. mentors have been women. And so anything that I can do, and I know our listeners feel the same way, I, I think I put out a little simple email a couple of months ago saying, hey, you guys, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is coming up. What are we going to do? And just one little email just spawned hundreds of emails back with people sharing their ideas of what they plan to do. And, and we'll talk about some of those ideas here to inspire our listeners. But, Sandra, talk to us about 1983. The dark ages of breast cancer. When... Uh well, first of all, I was too young to have a diagnosis. How old were you? Uh, in my late 30s. Okay. I had gone to the doctor for my regular checkup, like most women do. I was in an accounting practice with my husband at that time, so very organized, still am. And it was January, time to get all of those things off my list. Went to the doctor, he did an examination, uh, asked what that lump was. I told him, not to be silly, that was my breast. And uh, he said, well, we'll just watch it. I said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Let's find out what this is. Uh, sent me for a mammogram. I was too young to be within the recommendations for annual screening. Uh, but when the radiologist came out from behind the screen, I knew something was wrong. Fast forward to biopsies. Yes, it's cancer. No, it's not cancer. Let's take you before a tumor board. This is very interesting. Do you mind if I send it to a friend? Not at all. A friend is a pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Oh, very interesting. Could I send it to my friend, MD Anderson? So little pieces of me all over the country. Bottom line, a bilateral mastectomy was recommended. At that time, you didn't have choices. And I tell my patients now, as I told Kate when I met with her, The good news is, today you have choices. The bad news is, today you have choices. Because as a patient in this world today, you're sort of expected to make those. And the learning curve to gather information to make those choices is darn difficult. So that's kind of my job, is to help with that journey. Um, Double mastectomy, pretty impactful. You know, just being told you have cancer pulls the rug out behind you. Uh, What happens after that happens. But it takes you out of the world of wellness and puts you into the world of cancer, and you really never go back. But I did very well. And um, they made, at that time, you had to wait a year for reconstruction. So I did not wear a prosthesis. Uh, That is the the form that you wear um, in place of reconstruction for this uh, procedure. And nobody noticed. (laughs) I will tell you, though, I treated myself to very nice silk lingerie. 
and that was my way of maintaining my femininity. Because in this country and in this world, breasts define a lot about who you are as a woman, who you are as a partner, and who you are as a mother. And so it's a pretty darn impactful thing to go through. Well, I'd gone to a meeting, a breast cancer meeting, and I noticed that the women were talking to each other and talking to the physician who was presenting, but no one was paying attention to these four or five forlorn little husbands that were sitting there in pain of their own. So I said to someone, is there a, a group for men, spouses, partners? And uh, someone from the American Cancer Society said, no, do you want to start one? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So you know where it went from there. Anyways, I became involved with the American Cancer Society and started uh, mentoring women as a volunteer. And um, then I would sit on panels, discussion panels, that kind of thing. But I didn't have the right initials after my name because I was a patient and I was an accountant, what could I possibly know about breast cancer other than the fact that I had it? So that made me mad, so I went back to school and got my doctorate. So now, when Dr. Feinstein speaks, people listen. And with that, I continued my volunteering, but um, I was offered the position at Hogue Cancer Center uh, to do what I was doing at a volunteer manner, uh, as a professional. And I've been at Hogue over 10 years now, and it's my great privilege to do what I do. I meet amazing women at difficult times in their life, and I work with amazing people. It's a very, very nice place to be if you're going to have this terrible diagnosis. Now, you said that you were underage. So you wouldn't have fallen on that radar Correct. of annual screenings or whatever. Mm-hmm. My friend Kate was way under age right. in her you know, early 30s. Right. Um, can you talk about that? Well, the issue is that, you know, the reality is, if you look at the data, 80% of women that are diagnosed with breast cancer are over the age of 50. So the recommendation is to start your screening mammograms at age 40. All well and good. Unfortunately, that other 20% fall in the 30s and 40s. And unfortunately, when young women get this disease, it's usually very aggressive. Uh, Why is that? Mostly because uh, most breast cancers are estrogen-driven. Estrogen is the hormone that fuels the growth of these cells. And of course, young women have a lot more circulating estrogen than um, older women do. And uh, it's just a different disease in young women. It's a different disease in black women. Black women are not diagnosed at the numbers that white women are diagnosed, but they are diagnosed younger, and their disease is quite different, as it is with black men in prostate cancer. So it's, it's genetic, and different cultural populations present differently. With a young woman, the tragedy is not just the aggressiveness of the disease and what she's going to go through, but in many cases, these are young women with young families, or at least anticipating having young families. And the saddest part is that not only do they often lose their breast, breasts in many cases, um, but they lose the ability to have children, and that's tragic. That's tragic. 
can you give us uh, some facts? Give us some statistics on what is happening. Sure. Almost 200,000 women a year in this country are diagnosed with breast cancer. That's one woman every three minutes, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's a lot of women. Yeah. We're making amazing strides. The surgeries are uh, less invasive. The procedures are less difficult, but they're still invasive and they're still difficult. Less is just a matter of degree. You know, with Kate, Kate's a lovely young woman who had a very difficult surgery. Losing a body part is not easy. And the treatment for this is not easy. And what, so when I say the treatment is better and the surgery is less invasive, that is true, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Right. Doesn't mean it's easy. And then the chemotherapy uh, can throw you into premature menopause or very often young women are suggested that they have their ovaries removed. And you know, as I mentioned before, to step out of the world of wellness into the world of cancer and then be told again, you're going to lose your breasts and you're going to lose the ability to have children. That's awful. No one should have to face that. Are we making strides? We are. Do we have a cure? We don't. Will there be a cure? Not in my lifetime. It's too complicated. The more we learn, the less we know. There's no magic bullet here. We're treating individually much better. We're learning more that Kate can't be treated the same as Susan, who can't be treated the same as Jane, but it's still hard. Right. And there's still lots to learn and lots to do. You mentioned earlier, and also Kate shared with me that you taught her about what to ask. You, you mentioned that even though we have made great strides since 1983, uh, when you went through this yourself, um, we have more information, Correct. but how do you know what questions to ask? And so you teach people how to ask the right questions, is that? I do, and I, and I teach people that, or I attempt to, that um, the conclusions that they come to have to be their own. What's right for me may not be right for Kate. It may not be right for somebody else. So women have to make their decisions about what, up to a degree. I, I mean, of course, medically, this is what's presented to them. This Medically, this is a suggestion to do. You ultimately make the decision yourself. Hopefully, you make a decision that's surrounded by good advice and good data to support it. But asking the right questions is huge. I don't want any woman to go through this and have regrets later. Why didn't I do this? I should have done that. Or I should not have done that. Most women who first come into my office, and I have a very little office, and sit with me, their reaction is just remove the tissue, take both breasts off so I don't have to deal with this again. That isn't usually necessary, and that isn't often the best option. So we have to try and take away the fear, give them back the power through education, through knowledge. I really feel strongly that if they have that knowledge, they have the power. And, and so that then the process begins. Okay, if I do this, and, and 
when they're first treated, what we're trying to do is cure them so they never have to deal with it again. Right. So women, young and old, are treated very aggressively initially to eliminate that. They're having to go through this again. And again, it's not easy. And it's not easy to say, yes, you know, chemotherapy, bring it on. You walk in my office feeling pretty darn good. There's usually no pain. There's usually no symptoms. You might have felt something, but you're not feeling ill, knowing we're going to make you darn ill. We're going to put you through six months of really not nice stuff. Hopefully we can surround you with really nice people to help you through it, but it's still a tough journey. What's the biggest misperception about breast cancer? I think the biggest misperception is young women don't get it, and if it's not in my family, I'm not going to get it. If it is in my family, I am. Currently, we know that only about 5 maybe 7% of breast cancers are hereditary. That means there is a mutation that's passed from family to family, and it can come from the father's side of the family. Actually, that's, that's a lower figure than I It's thought. a lower figure than most people think. Do we know what starts it? No, we don't. No, we don't. You know, with lung cancer, we can look to smoking, or we can look to asbestos, or with skin cancer, we can look to sun exposure. We don't know with breast cancer. Even the women who have the mutation, the genetic mutation, the hereditary mutation, they don't always get breast cancer. They can be a carrier. But I think that the two biggest misconceptions are the hereditary factor and that young women don't get it. Send a message out then to people listening to this. I guess you sort of just did, <laughs> you know, to young women what to do. Young women need to do, I teach young women in junior high school to do breast self-examination. Wow. You have the power in your own hands. And you know, one doctor said something to me that I will never forget. Because a lot of women go to their physicians expecting them to take that challenge on. And this physician said, this hand that examines one breast every thousand times is not nearly as educated as the hand that examines the same breast a thousand times. So women have the power. Now, do we want to detect it at a time when it's palpable or can be felt? No, we would like to detect it much earlier than that. But should young women in their 20s and 30s get screening mammograms? The answer is no. And the reason is their breasts are full of hormones. It's not by accident that young women have these nice little perky breasts and older women don't. Because what happens is as you age, as a woman ages, the hormonal tissue in their breasts turns to fatty tissue. Good news is fatty tissue is translucent and we can do a mammogram and find something quite clearly. Hormonal tissue is not. To do a mammogram on a young woman with a lot of hormonal tissue is like doing, is like an overexposed negative. All you see is gray matter. You can't see anything. So having a mammogram younger is really not effective. We still recommend starting at age 40. Or if you do have a family member, a mother, a sister, who was diagnosed that you have your mammogram 10 years prior to her 
diagnosis. So let's say a woman is diagnosed at 40, then her daughter should start a screening at 30. But most young women should start at 40. But they shouldn't wait for the mammogram to take control of their own breast health. They should be doing breast self-examinations. And I know most women say, oh, it's lumpy bumpy, it's too confusing, so they just don't do it. That's the message I would like to get across. Educate yourself. Know what your breasts feel like. Know if it feels lumpy bumpy, that that's what it always feels like, and that's normal. Because what a woman's job is, and what my charge is, and what my challenge is, know what your breasts feel like so you know when there's a change, when there's something different. And that's something that a doctor examining you for the first time wouldn't necessarily know. That's right. A woman knows her own body. Absolutely. And doctors have educated hands. I don't want to negate that. They may be able to feel something, you know, that perhaps you wouldn't or a lover or a husband wouldn't. They do have those educated hands. But a woman should know her own body. I think that's huge. And the other thing I want to get across, don't be afraid of what you find. If you find something, act on it. Because not only could it save your life, but it could save your breast. If it's tiny, teeny, tiny, we just need to remove a teeny, tiny piece of tissue. You do not need to lose that breast. And you absolutely do not need to lose your life. If we can catch it early, we're talking 99.8% cure. That's incredibly important. Talk to us about the different foundations and organizations that are are out there. Obviously, you've been involved with several, including the American Cancer Society and the Susan G. Coleman Coleman Foundation. Foundation. Uh Talk to us about these different organizations and and what they do. Sure, and they're all wonderful. The American Cancer Society, of course, is all cancers. And they uh, have an unbelievable wealth of information that's available to the patients. They can call. There's a 24-hour seven-day hotline that they can call and get materials and get information and talk to people. The uh, Coleman Foundation is now called the Susan G. Coleman Race for the Cure or the Susan G. Coleman for the Cure and it is focused strictly on breast cancer so their focus is much more narrow. The Coleman Foundation was started on a promise of one sister to another which I think is powerful doesn't have to be your biological sister to make a promise one to the other. We are all sisters, you know, under the skin, so to speak. And so I think we have an obligation. And women, you deal with women all the time. You know women take care of each other. They do. And they do it very, very well. And they talk. Do you know that on average a man uses 7,000 words a day and a woman (laughs) 20,000? Like, I don't know that. Like, you don't know that. But women do talk. So if they're going to talk, let them talk to each other about something that's important. The Coleman Foundation also is incredible in that um, they have affiliates all over the country and actually all over the world. And 75% of the funds that are raised in each of those communities stay in the community to help the women of that community. And that's one of the reasons that I'm invested. Because I do a lot of work with research. 
I read grants for the Department of Defense, breast grants for the Department of Defense. I read grants for the Avon Foundation. I review grants for the Coleman Foundation. I'm very invested in research. I want the surgery to be less invasive, the treatment to be better, and I would like to find better options for women. So I'm very invested in that. But I don't want to forget the woman that is having the disease, is dealing with the disease, we still need to help her and deal through with that. So that's kind of my passion. Let's look at the research, let's fund the research, and sometimes there's a misconception about, oh, all this money that's going to breast. Trust me, whatever we learn about breast cancer is going to translate to other cancers. Everybody's going to benefit. So I, I really strongly believe in the research, but I really believe we need to take care of the woman who's dealing with this at the moment, you know, and the real time. So the money that is raised, you say 75% of it stays locally with the Susan G. Cohen Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, what does the money go for? Oh, it goes for screening mammograms. It goes for treatment to women who, for, who don't have the money. There are funds available, both federal and state funds available, if a woman is diagnosed with cancer and doesn't have insurance. And there's funds available for screening. But there's a gap there between screening, finding something suspicious, and being diagnosed. So we in this community, the Komen Foundation in this community, pay for that gap. We also pay for things that most people don't realize or recognize. What if a woman has metastasis to the bone and she can't drive? She needs transportation getting to and from her doctor. So it's like non-medical non-medical services. services. Uh-huh. We very often will pay for her medical insurance to maintain her insurance because perhaps she's lost her job because she can't work. So that we'll pay for her insurance premiums to maintain that for her while she's in treatment. We pay for things that that her insurance doesn't pay for outside of that. All kinds of what we call ancillary things that are really important. And we pay to teach women in um, ethnically diverse communities who are very reluctant to talk about it or to um, see a, fa a, a male physician, for instance. Um, and so we go into those communities and in appropriate ways present the information to them. And that's important too. It has to be in a way that is meaningful to them and that they will act on it. Does the Komen Foundation also organize uh, support groups and... Actually, the Komen Foundation is not, is the director from their national is not to do any direct service. What their charge is to find someone who's doing a support group and help oh, cool. them. Cool. They are not allowed to do screenings in the community. What they do is they find someone who's doing it, give them the tools to do it better. Got it, got it. Which I think is an appropriate thing right. to do. They also try to find those gaps in service and then find someone to fill the gap. In fundraising, what's the most creative, unique fundraising type event that you have come across where an individual or a group of people got together and they did something amazing and you just thought, my gosh, that was brilliant. Well, I have to say Race for the Cure because Nancy Brinker, who was the founder, and Susie Komen, who was her sister who died at 36 of breast cancer, uh, she promised her sister no other young woman or no other young family should go through this. And look at the amazing thing that happened. 
You know, she got a few of her friends together for lunch, very wealthy friends with deep pockets, albeit. She was a, a woman who was in the right place at the right time. She was uh, in corporate America, and she went to corporate America, and she said, you guys have to step up to the plate. And they said, we don't want to talk breast cancer. That's negative. That's none. She said, no, you need to. If you're in a woman's industry, your consumers are women. A lot of your employees are women. This is a woman's issue. Pay attention to it. And it's hard to say no to Nancy. So people started listening. And it was at a time when women were also entering the corporate environment. And so, again, you know, timing is everything. And she tapped into a sphere of women that listened to what she had to say, and men, uh, in all fairness, and, and became Race for the Cure. Here in Orange County last year, we raised almost $3 million in one day. Unbelievable. Now, do people do other sort of creative things? Of course they do. Women make jewelry and sell it. Well, gosh, Cuisinart makes pink mix masters, you know? Uh, Auric makes pink vacuums. The whole pink thing is maybe way over the edge, but it's effective. Right. It's effective. And sometimes I get that, oh, you know, my gosh, I'm so over that people still recognize it, and it may prompt. If it prompts one woman to get her mammogram done and we save one life, right. it's worth all that pink. Actually, within our beauty industry, uh, Universal Spa Equipment, they have pink gloves. Oh, that's great. That, yeah. <laughs> it is cool. That estheticians and nail techs can wear during the month of uh, October. I know that a lot of salons and schools do uh, pink bake sales. Uh, Fabulous. To raise money. I have cookie cutters the shape of ribbons if you need them. <laughs> Perfect. Um, actually, uh, one of our schools in San Francisco, they have the pink fake tattoos. Oh, that's great. You know, so they're of the ribbon yeah, that, yeah. They, that they do. And so um, there's all kinds of, of ways that people can raise money. Mm-hmm. What, what call to action do you have for people, people listening to this? And, and of course, people want to get involved. What, what do you tell them to do? Well, uh, I think that it doesn't take a lot don't think because you're not wealthy and can't write a big check that it isn't important. You know, you take a hundred people and each of them give five dollars. That's impactful. Yeah, yes. That's impactful. That means we can help a woman. That is a lot. And so I don't want people to stop producing because they don't think, A, they can afford it. You know, two Starbucks and it makes a difference. <laughs> That's good. What, what you spend on Starbucks, still buy Starbucks. That, oh yeah, still buy Starbucks, <laughs> we want to promote, but, but you know, those kinds of things. For instance, I have a team at the Cancer Center, and we have over 500 members of my team, which is huge. We're a small hospital, small community hospital. But the secretaries are participate, you know, the housekeepers participate. I have a housekeeper who gives up her lunch every day for a week to pay her entrance fee. To me, that's really, really special. Yeah. hate to say it, but it means more to me than someone who writes me a big check. Not that I won't take the big check, because right. I think that's important too. But I would like people to know that they don't have to do big things to make a big difference. You mentioned that way back then you started a support group for men. Can you talk about that? Yes. Poor men. They struggle through this. You know, men are fixers. 
then they're very linear thinkers. You have a problem, you, you just go forward, you do it, da 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 da. Engineers in particular, I have, they're so want to fix it. Um, they don't have a role in this. They're not the physician, they can't prescribe, you know, they're not walking in the shoes. And so what do they do? I feel so bad for the partners and spouses of women going through this because they really don't know what to do and they can't make it better. And they see the person that they love struggling and, and being ill and, and feeling sad and all of those things. And what can they do? Sometimes I tell them you just have to think of yourself as the family car. You know, make sure you're, you've got your tune-up, make sure you've had your oil changed because if she needs you, you need to be there. And sometimes it doesn't take any more than a hug. You know, a foot massage goes a long way when you're not feeling good. For a woman to perhaps lose one breast or both breasts and now going through chemotherapy loses all of her hair, there goes her breasts and her hair, the two things that identify a, a woman's femininity. What can the, the spouse, the husband, the, the male partner that, you know, do to support that process? Let me tell you a story that someone related to me, and this was an older woman, and not that it makes any difference. But uh, she had a mastectomy, did not have reconstruction, came home from the hospital and was home, you know, a day or so, and got into the shower. And as she walked out of the shower, her husband walked into the bathroom, and she immediately took the towel and covered herself. And this dear sweet man took the towel away and kissed her scar and said, you know, your beauty is on the inside, not on the outside. Do you know what that did to her? That took her out of her mourning and made her beautiful again. And do I expect every man to do that? No. But I do expect every man to rub her bald head and rub her feet and hold her when she needs to be held and look at her without that hair and see what a beautiful face she has. Someone came to my support group a couple of years ago uh, just as a visitor and as she left she said thank you ladies for not having hair because I was able to see all your beautiful faces and that comment just perked everybody up because when you lose your hair you lose your eyebrows you lose your eyelashes I mean, you lose your hair, you feel like a ghost. You wonder, who am I? Where did I go? And somebody needs to keep telling you that that beauty's on the inside. I had a young woman who's now become a very good friend of mine who was um, blonde, beautiful, legs up to here, gorgeous, uh, had her breasts enlarged because she, she thought that she had to have this image and she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to lose that breast and thought her life was over because she lost who she thought she was. She lost her hair, she lost her breast, she lost her boyfriend because he didn't have that beautiful woman on his arm anymore. And she and I spent a lot of time searching for that beautiful woman that was inside of her. I'm telling you this story because it has a happy ending. She uh, quit her job in corporate America, refinanced her house, went back to school and became a nurse and is now 
nursing women through this process and loves what she does. And you can understand the empathy that she has for a patient because she has walked that walk. So that's a nice story. And we got rid of that boyfriend. We didn't need him yeah, anyway. Yeah, we didn't need him anyway. No, no. no. We're looking for another, however. Okay, <laughs> well, I don't know of any other industry besides the beauty industry where you think of it, the service provider, that hairdresser, is looking in the mirror pretty much all day, every day. They're looking at themselves in the mirror all day, every single day. Accountants mm -hmm. don't do that. No. Doctors don't do that. No. Lawyers don't do that. Hairdressers look in the mirror at themselves all day, every day. And so now for a woman to look in the mirror and she is unrecognizable to herself. So yeah, it's devastating. But I have to tell you and applaud you. You know, I came and spoke to your students here. They paid attention to me. <laughs> they paid attention. They asked really good questions. And I told them, take this information to your mom, to your aunt, to your grandmother, to your cousins, to your sisters. And also, you know, men do get breast cancer very small numbers but men do get breast cancer they have mastectomies they go through treatment uh, so men have to be aware too but gosh can you imagine if one of your students had gone home and taken that message to an aunt and made a difference that's pretty terrific one of my patients was a police officer and she asked her sergeant if I could come and speak. And of course, he made all the police officers come. None of them wanted to be there. They listened to what I had to say, very stoically, did not ask questions. But I will tell you, the next day, I got a call, and one of them went home, talked to his fiance, and he found a lump in her breast and saved her life. And that's why knowledge is so powerful. You know, knowing what to look for, what to do, the next steps, and not being fearful to do it. Because again, if we can find it small, it makes a huge difference. Women do not have to lose their breasts. On a personal level, what's been your proudest role or contribution in this journey? Well, if you saw my office, again, that little teeny office, it's full of wonderful things, notes and stuff that people have given me and I appreciate it I really do but on a very selfish note one of the honors that you mentioned was that um, I was named the Komen International Volunteer of the Year and that was you know to be chosen out of 75,000 people is pretty darn cool I was pretty proud of myself and I thought gosh one person can make a difference you know in my very small way, and I don't have millions of dollars to give, I wish I did, but I think that's powerful. That is, every person can make a difference, and, and it made me very proud to think that somebody recognized that I had made a difference. What can salon professionals do? So you're, you're talking to hairdressers, manufacturers, distributors, uh, skin care therapists, estheticians, nail technicians, you're talking to a huge big audience that I always believe our industry is so powerful and you know when, when people want to get something done they, they turn to our industry. <laughs> so. Well and, and your consumers are mostly women yeah. so it's this is a you know it's an important part of what you do, a huge part of what you do. Again Pink ribbons. Pink ribbons make people think about things. Um, have literature out. 
it doesn't take much to have a breast self-examination card, you know, at a station. Just do those kinds of things. During Breast Cancer Awareness Month, do something. Mother's Day, do something. You know, have a mammogram, uh, a mummygram. We had a school project one year where children took mummygrams home and to, you know, encourage their moms, grandmothers, aunts, whatever, to have a mammogram. All kinds, you can do, you guys are extremely creative. You can do all kinds of things. Wear pink hair during October. I don't care, whatever you do. (laughs) What's your biggest hope? My biggest hope is that if a young woman like Kate is diagnosed, because I can't change that, I, I wish I could wiggle my nose and make it all go away, but I can't. But my biggest hope is that if a young woman like Kate is diagnosed, that she doesn't have to lose her breasts and we can cure it without the difficulty of the treatment and without her losing potentially the ability to have children. I would like that. Uh, Of course, I want the same things for older women too, but it just breaks my heart to see these young women um, and their families going through this. It's difficult, it's difficult. Is the cancer diagnosis itself any less impactful for an older woman? No, it isn't. I have 80-year-old women who come in and they don't want to lose their breasts either. They don't. They don't want to look in the mirror and not recognize themselves either. But they don't have to worry about, you know, 80 more years of life or having children. So the impact is different. I I would just like, and we're working on it, and there is headway, not fast enough, but I would like less invasive surgery easier treatment and and the ability to take a lot of the pain away. Do you have a final message for our listeners? Don't think that every person can't make a difference. Each of you can equate to millions, can equate to millions of lives saved and millions of dollars for research. Don't think that you can't make a difference because even talking about it You know, let's say you're a hairdresser or or a manicurist and you're talking about it. You don't know the potential, the domino effect that someone could be thinking about it, someone could act on it, someone could perhaps have a lump and have been afraid to do something about it or haven't gotten their mammogram done. You just never, never know. I have people come to me at an event and they'll say, you probably don't remember me, but five years ago you said something that changed my life. I'm not anybody special, you know. I do have a message and I talk about it, but just promoting it, you, you just don't know. You could be saving lives. And that'd be pretty special. I can add nothing to that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for allowing me to be Kate's friend, too.